into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say here in The Theology Pit. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here in The Theology Pit, again, we're going to keep you fed, we're going to keep you hydrated, we're going to keep you, you know, nice and strong for when you're going out about your day and you're kind of, you know, just doing your daily theology. Now, what do I mean by daily theology? Well, here at the Theology Pit, we believe rightly that everyone is a theologian. The question just comes in, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? Or are you a sloppy theologian? Because there are a lot of sloppy theologians out there. And everyone's a theologian. Everybody. Theology is the study of God. So, if you have an opinion about God, then you have a theology. Even if you're an atheist, an atheist has a theology, it's a very definite theology that there is no God. And so therefore, uh, even atheists are theologians. Everybody's a theologian. But, you know, this thing that separates, you know, professional theologians from amateur theologians, honestly, is uh, level of education and uh, income. You know, whether you're being paid for it. It's, it's like a musician. What separates a professional musician from an amateur musician? There are lots of professional musicians out there um, and they get paid to do what they do. They go to school for it. But then there's amateur musicians also that are every bit as good as the professional ones. They just never went to school and they don't do it for a living. It's just something that they enjoy doing. I go to a lot of, um, you know, local shows um, that musicians will put on or, you know, coffee shops, like those sort of things. And every now and again, you come across somebody that is a really, really good musician. You would consider them professional, but it's not their day job. It's just something that they enjoy doing. They picked up the acoustic guitar one day and said, you know what? I just really enjoy doing this. So they studied it on their own or maybe piano. And, you know, they studied it on their own, any instrument, and they just got super, super good at it. Um, but, you know, if you ask them, are you a professional? They would say, oh, no, absolutely not. But the level of their understanding is at a professional level. And that's the same thing with theology. In theology, your level of understanding can be extremely high and you can be extremely good. But, um, you know, if you think that you can just go into theology without any background or any study, you can, but it's not going to be as good and it's going to come off as sloppy. And if you hear a little change in my voice, I apologize. I've been sick. I'm trying to get over it. And uh, But that's still not going to stop me from recording the theology pit. We're going to start out slurping some coffee here. Hope my voice holds up. I'm going to try and record a couple podcasts today. If I get through one, I'll be I'll be happy about it, but yeah, you know how it goes. So anyways, this is the next part in our uh, series on the Bible. I think this is part 12 that I'm recording today, and um, we're going to be talking about... Um, well, really the authority of Scripture and where Scripture falls in people's lives. And that's kind of a big one. I, I, I wanted to segue over to this. Now, you know, in, in all uh, disclosure, I do want to say that I know that I haven't done anything with the Old Testament yet, and I will get to that. 
But the reason why is because from a Christian perspective, a lot of the Old Testament will hinge on a lot of the New Testament. And hopefully you'll see that later on. I'll be able to bring that out more in, in, in the explanation. But I want us to have a very good handle on the New Testament and what we're talking about. And that's why I spent so much time going over um, you know, the, the variants of um, the New Testament or what some people would consider errors, um, why I went over the, the canonization of Scripture. Can we trust the words that we have? Can we trust, you know, all that sort of thing. Because eventually, when we get into the inspiration aspect of it and uh, we, you know, we'll be able to transition into the Old Testament from there. One of the um, kind of biggest points that I want to make in what I'm doing now, I've, I really should say this, I've, I've given a smaller series of lectures before on, um, on this topic that I'm, I'm talking about. In one particular lecture, I kind of hit all the high points within an hour, and I've, I've just stretched this. I'm stretching this out over 12 hours. But I've, I, I hit the high points on it, and I really broke it up into a couple different sections. And the first section was the Bible as a book of man. And that's really what I've been focusing on a lot lately. If you've noticed, I haven't been pushing for miracles. I haven't been pushing for prophecy. I haven't really been pushing for the, uh, the supernatural aspect of scripture. I've been looking at it as a book of man. And if if this is just a book of man, how has it been preserved? And that's pretty much been it. And that's been my intention to, you know, in in doing that. Really the next part that I'm going to be moving to will be, you know, a, a book of God. If it actually is a work of God and if it's a book of God, then there should be, you know, certain characteristics, certain aspects of it that we should expect to see from it. And then, um, you know, looking at it as also a change agent. Now, granted, any book can be a change agent that people believe, but I'm not saying that to say that the Bible is unique in in the fact that it changes lives because people say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. They say the same thing about the Quran. They say the same thing about the the writings of Ba'u'llah. What I'm saying is that if we don't recognize that, like if, if that if that didn't exist, if we said okay, the Bible is this you know well preserved you know group of documents that we have from man, um, that it is a a book that has a supernatural aspect to it or a predictive aspect to it, but it does not change people's lives at all. I would see that as problematic. So even though that's something that is shared among a lot of uh, the great religions, it's I'm I'm not neglecting that. Okay, I mean. I still want to put that in there because I think it's very important. It's like whenever, um, you know, you talk about the different arguments for the existence of God, um, you know, a lot of times people have said, well, they listen to, you know, one of the arguments like the, you know, cosmological argument, you know, and they would say that, well, the cosmological argument doesn't prove that, you know, Christianity, that the Christian God is the true God or is the only God or is the right God or the God that you're talking about. And that's true because that's not what that argument is set up to do. But the attributes of the concept of godness that comes from the cosmological argument is necessary to be present in anyone that's claiming a deity. So if their deity does not have those particular attributes that is brought out through the cosmological argument, then it falls apart. So I'm not saying that Christianity is the only one 
that makes claim to the cosmological argument. I'm saying that if the cosmological argument did not uh, describe the God that Christians worship, then the God that Christians worship would be a false God. It would be a, a separate God. It would lose certain key attributes of Godness that make God God. So that's kind of my my point with that. It's not that you know that all of this everything that I'm talking about is unique to Christianity. I'm just saying that without it, then there is there's a deficit in in the Christian faith. So again, the change agent aspect is a part of that. But with any religious writing, or really with any writing at all, um, you look at it as a type of of authority. And how do you actually view that authority? Do you view it with a type of skepticism? Do you view it with a type of um, reverence to where even if it, let's say for argument's sake, you're reading something that did have a direct contradiction within it. Uh, would you try to reconcile that as much as you possibly could? Or would that be something that you would um, you know, just ignore and just hope nobody else sees and just try to you know, push it aside? You know, or would you reject it all outright? And how do you know that you even have the freedom to do that? Let's say that you see something that you don't understand and you, you read it. It could be in any book at all. It doesn't matter what it is history book, textbook, uh, science book, uh, just mathematic, anything. Okay. And you're sitting there and you're looking at it and you're just like, I don't understand this, but boy, there are a lot of really, really smart people out there that actually do understand this and they see it as valuable. Maybe the problem is that I just don't understand Maybe that's the issue. Maybe the issue is my level of education. Uh, and so I have, I have two choices. Either I can you know, up my level of education so that I do understand it, or I can trust in some people that actually do understand it and yeah, put, put it forth, okay? Like, for example, when it comes to, you know, antibiotics, I don't know anything about, you know, antibiotics. I mean, I could Google it and I could look at how do they, how do they work, how they, but I don't have the, um, the background in that discipline to understand how antibiotics work. All I know is that when I get really sick, I go to the doctor, he prescribes antibiotics. I don't think about it. I just take them. Why? Because I trust him and I trust the people that, you know, are behind him that say this will work, this is what uh, needs to be done because it will you know, fight this sickness, fight this infection, whatever it's, whatever it's doing. And it's because you know, I know that the steps that are taken is that it's not just one person with one opinion, it's a group of people. And this group of people have been cross-checking themselves, publishing their, their findings, you know, rechecking it over and over, doing uh, clinical studies, those sort of things. My doctor never did any of those clinical studies on the, um, the medicine that he's prescribing me at all. He just trusts in a larger majority of people, medical scientists and doctors that have done this research and have done these studies and have proven this to where it's published in something that he trusts and that he has looked into and just understands the language and trusts those people in what they're saying and says, okay, I trust you and therefore I am going to give this to you. And you know what? It works out. 
and it works out and that just helps to solidify you know what he believes and what i believe as someone that's not in the medical profession at all well when you look at the church and you look at the Bible, it's sometimes it can be the same thing. Sometimes you can have what's called a magisterial authority. These people who are a lot smarter than me that I trust to then understand, to interpret, to allow me to, you know, kind of put my faith in something and, and believe what they say because why not? Especially if it's working out. And I think that that's a really important key aspect uh, in, in understanding um, what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. I kind of want to get that you know image in your mind because we're going to be working through um, the different views. And I'm, I'm just going to stick with like five primary views. I may actually throw a sixth in there, but the five primary views are sola ecclesia, Prima Scriptura, Regula Fide, Sola Scriptura, and Solo Scriptura. And we're going we're gonna to break down each one of those in this podcast, and we're going to talk about them. And um, I might want to talk about the uh, anti-ecclesia, or the, sorry, yeah, well, anti-ecclesia would actually work, but it'd be more anti-scriptura, but uh, anti-ecclesia, uh, ecclesiology is the study of the church. So when we say sola ecclesia, we mean the church alone. Uh, prima scriptura, we mean scripture is the primary authority. Regula fide is the rule of faith. Sola scriptura is scripture alone, and solo scriptura is scripture all by itself. So anti-scriptura would be against the Bible, negate the Bible. I guess you could almost call it, well, it's in, it's in Latin, so I guess a scriptura would not, wouldn't work there. Um, but um, agraphia? perhaps would, would work uh, for anti-writing anti in that sense. But anti-scriptura, I think, is going to be the, the, the best point. Maybe, maybe we'll start off with that. Anti-scriptura, I would have to define as somebody that believes that anything that the Bible says is immediately wrong based on where it comes from. Okay, and in in philosophy, this is what's called a genetic fallacy, and that's that wherever it comes from determines the veracity of what it is. So if if you believe that you know all I don't know all British people are liars, okay, then you if if a British person told you something, you would immediately consider it to be a lie because of where it came from. It doesn't matter what they said. Anti scriptura would be just that. Somebody would say, oh, it's just, it's from the Bible. So it's immediately wrong. And they may have different ways of doing that. They may have different ways of saying it's wrong outright, or it's wrong because it's just something that was rewritten and copied a million times and you just can't trust it and you just don't know about it. And that's a very common uh, objection that you hear when it when it comes to scripture and where you know it is in your life and where it is in, in your walk. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, your concept of scripture, um, you know, that has a certain influence in your in your life. The Bible itself. I mean, the Bible has shaped Western civilization. If you live within Western civilization, the Bible has had a huge impact on you. And, and on your culture that, you know, you, you can try to ignore, but to be honest, you, you really can't ignore it because of the prominence, you know, of this particular piece of literature. So if the Bible, you know, were to say that, you know, um, helping somebody is good, 
you know, people would immediately, an anti-scriptura person would ignore it and just say, no, that's, we don't need the Bible to tell us that. We just know. Okay, and it, it comes from nowhere. Maybe it comes from a, um, a relativist understanding of, of morality, of epistemology. Maybe it comes from a subjectivist point of view. Um, but it cannot be uh, an objective uh, reality. Okay, so the fir- that first one there is probably the easiest one to kind of grasp because it, it's it's just such an understanding of negation that I think people can comprehend it. I think they can. I, I think we've all run into enough people that have been uh, anti scriptura that we know the typical arguments that are thrown out there and we know the typical arguments that that happen. So I kind of want to move to. Um, this and and that's and I mean I really that that is a tradition in in a way it might be, um, you know and I guess, I guess an unarticulated tradition of you know anti Christianism or atheism or anti theism uh, when it comes to the Bible but that's a tradition nonetheless if you believe in those religions and you know I mean atheism is a religion let's not you know, uh, mince words here. Let's, let's be honest here in the pit that a- atheism is a religion. And, you know, when I, I when I do another, uh, podcast, um, where I'm just doing, uh, uh, you know, general talk, I'll be able to kind of move all over the place with my different opinions with that instead of just, you know, sticking to a series like I'm doing here in the theology pit. But that's what I'm going to talk about is the, the proof of atheism being a religion. Um, that is, that's one of the dogmas that you have to adhere to. Not only is there, you know, no God, but also the dogma that the Bible is completely wrong and you have to, um, have the 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 creeds of and the mantras of the atheist uh, perspective and the anti scripture perspective that you can trump it out every time someone says something about the Bible, whether it's just like I don't believe that or it's been um, you know rewritten or it's been copied so many times or whatever. And I always find those to be kind of humorous in a sense. I mean, it's like I know what they're saying, but it's 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 it's. It's something that was written out of ignorance, but um, it, what they're trying to say is it's been rewritten, and so you don't know what it says. And my question always is, well, if it's been rewritten, you obviously have an inkling of what it should have said. So what did it say, and how do you know that so that you actually do know that it's been rewritten? Where's your evidence of it being rewritten? And you would have to show the evidence of it in two different formats, to say, well, this one came earlier and then it was rewritten and now you have this. Well, if that's the case, I mean, Christians are all about getting back to the original sources. They would say, oh, where did you get that one that's closer to the original? We'll actually reevaluate and we'll actually, you know, uh, adhere to that. What what Christianity doesn't do or shouldn't do, I, I should say, is take whatever version of the Bible that they have and say that this is the original autographs of uh, the the authors. Okay, this isn't um, you know what the prophets and apostles actually wrote. That's what I have. The, this is the ink is still you know wet from two thousand years ago of, of what they say. That's not what Christianity does. That's not what it should do, and that's not what it says. And I went through that in you know pretty much the last podcast and the ones ones beforehand on on what we're doing. So 
you know, really from an anti-scriptura position, you can't say those sort of, you can't make those sort of claims without any proof to back it up. Um, so anti-scriptura is a very difficult one to hold to, but in a biblically illiterate culture, uh, I, I think you can, you could pass it off. I really do because people don't know where their Bible came from or how they got it. And so it's very easy to trip up, um, what people believe and, um, you know, kind of mess up their faith. Uh, Daniel Dennett in his book, Breaking the Spell talks about, you know, people having faith in faith. And he, he would say that, you know, in more or less in converting Christians into atheists, you need to go after those ones that just have faith in their faith. They don't actually have faith in God or in anything real, anything tangible, anything that, um, you know, is actually provable because Christians that actually have faith in God, you can't sway them. But Christians that only have faith in their faith, if you can destroy the faith in their faith, they will reject God ultimately because they don't have faith in God. They only have faith in their faith. Um, so Breaking the Spell is a very interesting book. It's you know 400 pages. Um, I, I was very unimpressed with it, um, especially for uh, someone who's a professional philosopher. Um, Daniel Dennett really let me down. I was looking for some really good, you know, uh, atheist arguments and answers to the philosophical, um, you know, ideas and syllogisms and presuppositions that are brought up by, um, you know, Christian philosophers. And it just, it just really fell short in my opinion. So, um, the historical view, I guess the, one of the oldest historical views that we would have, um, would be uh, within Christianity would be the regular fide. Okay, and this is the rule of faith. Now, this is something that the early church held on to, and it's something that uh, the rough definition of, of the rule of faith is that this is something that was held to everybody who believed it always everywhere. Okay, everybody held to this always and everywhere. So, if you came at them with a new um, book, Okay, or a new understanding, they would say, well, I don't remember Peter talking about that. I don't remember John talking about that. I don't remember their disciples talking about that. Nobody has ever talked about that. Nobody has ever believed that. Where do you get that from? And if you can't trace it back to, you know, to the originals or to some point of authority, then they would say, well, we reject that. And, you know, I, I hope I brought that out, just that concept out in the last uh, few podcasts when it came to the canonization of the New Testament, that, you know, if it wasn't something that everybody held to, well, then it wasn't accepted. And that was the rule of faith. And it's, you know, an interesting concept because as I said, there was not one person that said this is the collection of books and there wasn't one group or council that said this is, you know, what the book should be. Really the councils and the, um, the leaders were just kind of putting a stamp, a rubber stamp of approval on what everybody had always believed. And they said, look, the majority, the great majority of Christians believe these things. Okay. So this is sort of the without which not, okay, of our, 
of our faith because this is the rule of faith. This is what everybody always believes. One of the interesting things about the um, Council of Nicaea that was brought out um, was that they didn't want people who were good exegetes, okay, which means people that could really uh, explain the Bible because you could do a lot of hermeneutical jumping jacks to make the Bible say whatever you want. One of the most important things that they wanted brought out from each of the bishops that were there, of the um, 315 of them, I think there were, something like that, 316 of them, was what were you taught? What was passed down to you? Because if what you were taught and what was passed down to you, you know, is similar or the same, then it's a good, it gives us a good idea of the way we should be understanding scripture and interpreting it. That scripture was not written in a vacuum and we are not to understand it in a vacuum. And this had to do with the, um, the, the deity of Christ, the nature of Christ. Was he of the same substance as the father or was he of similar substance of, uh, with the father? We went over that before with the, uh, homoousios and homoousios. Um, I, I, I believe I talked about that in, um, the series on uh, salvation or on uh, justification. I should really change the title of that, but you know, it's, it's as, as salvation. So if you go to samsonstick.com and you go to the theology pit in the salvation series, you can listen to all of those lectures. And uh, I discussed that point in there, but um, that, that just shows that the regular fee day was kind of the big deal. So when it came to what was considered the scripture, the regular fee day also came into play with it. Now, the next one that's that, that comes about is the sola ecclesia, and this means the church alone. Now, this does not mean the church all by itself, okay? Um, and this does not mean the, the church as, I would say, all the people. We're talking about the magisterial authority who's representing the church as a whole. And sola is different from solo. Okay, solo means all by yourself. Sola means it's by itself, but that there are other things that influence it and other things that, you know, come into play. So the sola ecclesia would be the aspect of the church that definitely comes into play in helping us understand what scripture is and, you know, what, where its position is. And to kind of get a better grasp on this in the way the different denominations really understand this point and the role of the church in it, um, there are two types of tradition that people t- uh, typically look at. I shouldn't say two types of tradition. I should say two definitions of tradition, okay? The first one, tradition one, we'll call it, is that tradition is a summary of Christian orthodoxy that's been held by the universal church, okay, by the Catholic church since its inception. It's, it is infallible only because it accurately represents scripture. If it does not accurately represent scripture, then it's not true tradition. Therefore, it is subject to the scripture, okay, and that is what we're talking about with the, with the regular fide. So, that's tradition one. Think of it as a summary of scripture. Tradition two is an infallible unwritten body of material that contains information beyond which is contained in the scripture. Okay. This tradition begins with the apostles teaching. Think of like the didache, those sort of things. Um, And you know, that that is passed on through a succession of bishops and the magisterial authority. So this is stuff that was taught, but not written down. And it's just something that has been passed along in the way that you are to understand scripture. 
So tradition one um, would be a, a summary of, of orthodoxy. For example, the Nicene Creed would be tradition one. It would be a summary in saying that this is what people believed and the reason why they believe it and that it's true is because it is found in scripture and we can go back and find it in scripture. Tradition two is that there are there's a different avenue. There's a separate avenue that God gives his revelation that helps us to understand scripture and preserves it that's not necessarily found in scripture. Now, the argument that I'd make here in the theology pit is that all Christians believe in a mix of these two traditions. I mean, you're probably listening to tradition too, and you're thinking, hey, that's the Roman Catholic Church. That's what they believe, which is true. And I'm a Protestant. I don't believe that which I would say is true to a degree. You do believe that, but it's not as formalized as what you find in the Roman Catholic Church. There are certain dogmas that you hold to that may not necessarily be found in Scripture. And if you're someone that's a, a high theologian that you know has studied salvation, and we, I touched on this in, in the Salvation podcast, um, the lapsarian views, the infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, and sublapsarian uh, ideas of the the eternal decrees of God. And these are things that are not found in scripture. You do not find a list of these decrees in there. It is something that is deduced from scripture, but not explicitly found in it. It's outside of it. Uh, so when people say, this is what it says, then that's what you how you interpret it and how you agree with it. Same thing with uh, the concept of free will. The Bible does not speak about free will some say that the Bible assumes it, and others say that, well, it assumes it, but uh, not in the way that you're saying, that there is no free will. There truly is no libertarian free will. And depending on the way you're using traditions here, one or two, is how you're understanding that. So, sola ecclesia, I think that it cuts both ways. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so with tradition two, think of it as like a living tradition and tradition one as sort of a static tradition, not in the sense that there aren't developments and understanding, but tradition one is just seen as a summary where tradition two is seen as ongoing. Okay. A summary being something that you can look back at a static material and then summarize something out of it, where the other one is a living tradition that's ongoing, that God is, you know, constantly giving revelation and constantly, you know, speaking in in new ways. Um, 
Tradition 2 most notably goes through magisterial authority, like in the Roman Catholic Church, where Tradition 2 in Protestantism would be most notably noticed in like charismatic Pentecostal churches. Because when they're speaking in tongues, according to Scripture, and of course I'm going back to Tradition 1 to say this, but they are saying that um, you are speaking for God. What you are saying is on par with the Word of God. So if you are in a church that has supernatural sign gifts and one of them is speaking in tongues and prophecy you are claiming that you are speaking with God and it and what you're saying should be given the exact same authority as what you give scripture now I know someone push against that and say well no it shouldn't it should be you know um, tested against it and that sort of thing uh, but this is where we we talked about that whole inspiration thing where does inspiration occur is it in the mind of the hearer is it in the person speaking uh, whenever people preach even in Protestantism you know and you know a, a pastor preaches from the pulpit uh, that is considered to be you know a word from God I, I see that on Facebook all the time that people say you know I'm going to church I'm going to hear a mighty word from God. I'm going to hear all this, you know, and they're not talking about someone just up there statically reading the Bible. They're talking about a a preaching that's going on so that the message that's given and the words that that pastor is saying that that is a, you know, a living tradition in a sense and another avenue through which God is speaking. All right. So, a formal definition, I guess, of sola ecclesia would be um, belief that tradition represented by the magisterial authority of the Roman Catholic Church is infallible and equal to scripture as a basis for doctrine. It is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice since it must define and interpret scripture. Now, is this such a bad thing? I mean, let's be honest. Is it such a bad thing? Because if people were allowed to read the Bible on their own without any uh, Christian influence, without any church influence on it, you know, what would happen? Okay, and this was the big question um, that happened with Martin Luther, you know, whenever in in the 16th century, early 16th century, when he was at the Diet of Worms, and it was more or less along the lines of, Luther, you can't put the Bible into the common tongue, okay? Because if you put it into the common tongue, and everybody can understand it, and you tell them that everybody can interpret it, and everybody can understand it, then what you're going to get is you're going to get heresy all over the place. You're going to have a splintering of the church. And you know why? You know how we know that that's true? Because it happened before. Whenever, you know, in the first couple centuries, we let people read the Bible and interpret it however they wanted, you started getting all of these different ideas and all of these different, um, you know, heresies all over the place. And we had to rope that in. We had to to rein that in. And Martin Luther pretty much said that, well, it's worth it. And the way he defended this was at the Diet of Worms, he said, I quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony from Scripture or by evident reason, for I confide neither in the Pope nor in a council alone, since it is certain they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am held fast by the scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience is held captive by God's word, and I neither can nor will revoke anything, seeing it is not safe or right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. And people have said that that, especially Protestants, they absolutely love that because 
they're saying that when you read God's word, it is plain enough to understand that you know you don't need anybody else. Now, when you understand like the story of what happened in Munster in in Germany in um, you know 1636, I believe it was, uh, or 1536, um, and you see all the craziness that occurred there because people were reading the Bible on their own and believing it and reading it unchristianly without any type of thing. People pushed that into what was called the solo scriptura aspect that we'll get to in, in a little bit here. But the sola ecclesia view was seen as, hey, this is a good thing. We have these scholars, these people that we trust that are telling us how to interpret scripture and how to understand it. We actually don't need to read the Bible. All we need is to be told how it applies to us and how we should behave and how we should act. Okay, just tell us what to believe and tell us what to do. This is why I started this podcast with the analogy of medicine in the medical field because we that, that's palatable to us. We understand that. That makes sense, okay? That's it's a good thing, you know. And so it's not completely out of left field if you are not, you know, a Roman Catholic to understand the whole point of you know the the missionals and the devotionals and um, you know the, um, the the liturgical readings and you know the studying and the kind of hands-off approach that the church had with the Bible. Now, a lot of that's changed since Vatican II, and since Vatican II, you had the encouragement of the Bible being uh, printed in the common tongue, the homilies being given in the common tongue, and um, the Bible studies that have you know, popped up all over the place where uh, Roman Catholics are studying their Bible and they're studying theology and you know they're getting this understanding, mostly as, I think, a response to uh, Martin Luther and Protestantism. Uh, some people have joked that Vatican II was kind of nicknamed Luther was right because if people don't know why they believe what they believe, then they're not going to adhere to it and they're going to be easily swayed by somebody that does have a familiarity with what they believe and is able to show them something different. And I, I think that it's a good thing. I think that Roman Catholics absolutely should read their Bible. I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. And the differences between the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible has to do with the Old Testament, not the New Testament. But, um, you know, when we get into hermeneutics, we'll look at the different ways of, you know, interpreting the Bible with tradition, with the church being a very strong forefront in that. And I think, I think it's strong in all traditions, but in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have this like one deposit of faith and then you have these two poles that come out of it. One is tradition, the church, okay? And the other is scripture, okay? And think of it like this, that the, the church holds the unwritten, infallible tradition. And the scripture holds the written, infallible tradition. Both traditions are infallible, unable to fail. One is written, one is unwritten. Now, this became a problem as we saw, you know, when you get bad popes, when you get bad councils, when you just get bad periods in the, you know, history of the Christian church uh, before Protestantism, uh, before that split where, you know, really you just had the East and West church. But, you know, for our sake, um, in the timeline we're talking about here in the theology pit, let's just stick with the, um, you know, what we would consider the universal 
church, which is the Catholic church. Catholic means universal, not the Roman Catholic church. Here in the theology pit, we hold that the Roman Catholic church came into existence Okay, um, after the the Reformation, there was a splitting there, and they said you're either going to be a protester of the Roman Church, a Protestant, or you're going to be part of the Roman Church. And so I would say that that's where the distinction comes. So whenever I talk about the Catholic Church pre, um, you know, the the time of the Reformation with Luther, I'm speaking of a universal um, tradition that we all hold to. And I know that can sound kind of confusing, but um, Roman Catholics like to look back at all of church history as Roman Catholic church history, which I don't have a problem with, but I think that it, it can be confusing whenever they try to say that the church of today is that church back then, when I would say no, because Protestants would, would do the same thing. They would look back through church history and say, no, it was actually the Roman church that split off and the Protestant church is the one that stayed uh, in the main vein where the Roman Catholic church would say, no, the Protestants split off. We're the main vein. Eastern Orthodox would say, no, we're the main vein. You split off and then split off even further later and have completely splintered out into all these crazy groups. So obviously we are the one true church because we've held it together the whole time. When you look through the timelines of church history, it gets really interesting when you look at it through those different you know perspectives. But um, what they would say, the, the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church would say in um, uh, uh, number uh, 81 here within the, the catechism, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Again, Theonoustos, God, God breathed. The and uh, holy tradition transmits its entirety of the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. 82 goes on to say, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Okay. Now, when they said to Martin Luther, you can't give people the Bible you know, and just let them read it. You know, you're going to have all kinds of problems. But Luther said, look, it's worth it. It's worth it for people to internalize the scripture. And why? You know, I mean, the letters that were written uh, by Paul, for example, and the gospels that were written were not written to, you know, the magisterial authority at all. You have some of Paul's letters that were written to individual people, but you also have letters that were written to be read aloud. You know, when you have uh, the book of Romans, for example, that's to be read to the church in Rome. That was something that was, uh, you know, meant for everyone and not just meant for a magisterial authority to then explain to people. Um, you know, I, I believe, I want to say it's the um, letter to the Ephesians, I 
think I'd have to, I have to look this up. Maybe, maybe the Colossians where Paul specifically says, send this letter, make a copy of it and send it to the church in Laodicea and get the letter that I've sent to them also. So, you know, this was an idea that these letters that were written were written to the church as a whole. Uh, the gospels are not written to any particular person, except, well, the gospel of Luke, you could say it was, it's written to, you know, Theophilus, but, um, you know, it, it was not intended for just him to read. It was something that, you know, he could read out loud. It also contained the, uh, the book of Acts. I mean, you had Luke and then Acts followed up and, you know, part two, but the majority of scripture of the New Testament is written to the people to be read to the people and understood by the people and for the people to read. Um, the book of Revelation, of course, was gone out to seven churches, which means all of those churches, everybody in it. It was not meant just for the magisterial authority to explain and then deliver to the people. And this is kind of what Luther was getting at with, you know, Protestantism. And Luther wasn't the first one to do it. I mean, there were many people before him, you know, I mean, you had at least 150 years of, you know, people being uh, martyred for this concept. And, you know, the, the concept of, you know, what was, um, you know, proper for Christian life and, you know, um, reproving and correcting and, you know, all that stuff that, you know, people should read and understand the Bible. They should read and understand the New Testament, the Word of God, um, and also also the Old Testament. I'm not leaving that out. I'm just kind of you know focusing on that aspect of it. Now, because of this, the understanding then of of tradition within the Roman Catholic Church, you know, it started moving, in my opinion, between sola ecclesia and what we would call prima scriptura. Now, prima scriptura is that scripture is the primary source, okay, of God's revelation, but not the only source. Now, granted, you can learn a lot about God through general revelation, which we talked about before, and special revelation explicitly. Now, you could learn about God and that there is a God and the concept of God through general revelation, but not in, you know, the meta narrative of the Bible, of the generation, degeneration, and regeneration of mankind. God re instating, redoing what went wrong, fixing what went wrong. The fact that, you know, Christ came and died for our sins, reconciling us back to the Father. Um, but Prima Scriptura is one that, I mean, it's, I'll read the definition here. The belief that the body of Christ has two separate sources of authority for faith and practice. The scripture is one and tradition is second. Scripture is the primary source for authority, but by itself is insufficient for all matters of faith and practice. Tradition also contains essential elements needed for the productive Christian life. Now, some Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and some Protestants hold to this view. I would want to say that this view right here, in my opinion, is the majority of the Christian faith. Okay? Everybody, very, very few people hold to, you know, a, a, a sola or a solo scriptura. And I would think that the people that think they're holding to a sola scriptura hold to a solo scriptura. And we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes here. But Prima Scriptura, you know, I would say that 
they believe that there's one deposit of faith and that the church is the unwritten tradition that interprets scripture and contains doctrine and morals that are extra biblical and that tradition can never contradict scripture where the scripture is the written infallible tradition. Now, I think that this is not just Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants, but all of Christianity. I've never been to a church that did not have a statement of faith. They all have a statement of faith that will tell you the way that you should interpret Scripture when you are in this church, the way they interpret Scripture, the way they understand it. And if you don't agree to this tradition, then you would not be allowed to be a member of this church, or if you were allowed to be a member of that church, you would not be allowed to be an officer in that church or to hold any other type of higher authority within that church because of this prima scriptura understanding that, you know, we believe that, and they would even say something like, you know, well, this is non-negotiable with us. Um, within the, the Presbyterian church that I hold to, um, the Westminster Confession is considered to be a negotiable document that you can hold to where the Bible is non-negotiable. But the statement of faith, I've been I was told, was non-negotiable. And I disagreed with that. I said, what? No. It's, it most definitely is negotiable unless you're putting it on par with scripture. They would say that they're not. Everybody would say, well, no, we don't put this on par with scripture as authoritative, but it is authoritative as scripture is authoritative. It's just that we have to be able to prove in scripture what we are paraphrasing and stating in these statements. And I think all churches do that. Okay. But, but that is what prima scriptura is that the scripture is the primary source, but would they hold to, you know, the, Nicene Creed, okay? Would they hold to the the, the tr Trinitarian articulation that is found in the Nicene Creed? Well, of course they would. They would all say, yes, we do. And then they would say, okay, well, is that, does that have authority? And I made this point when I was on Word FM one time. You know, I asked them, if I were to say to you that I believe that Jesus Christ was, you know, God wrapped in human flesh who died on the cross for your sins and thereby taking on your sins and giving his righteousness to you and your sinfulness got transferred to him. Is that a true statement? They said, yes. And I said, is that an infallible statement? And they all hesitated. And I said, you know what? Your hesitation's good because that's what we're saying here with Prima Scriptura. We are saying that the Bible's infallible, but also what we are saying within our doctrines is infallible with Scripture as long as it is reflecting what Scripture is saying. And the proof of this can be something that could be like a life-changing thing. You know, when you go out and, you know, when, when people go out and do missionary work or they do um, evangelical work where they're witnessing to people, you know, going out onto the streets or into the malls or, you know, the highways and the byways, the highways and the hedges, and they are witnessing, their witnessing is not just reading the Bible or just giving people Bibles and telling them to read. They're paraphrasing scripture. And if you ask people, hey, how many of you came to faith based on just reading the Bible. You probably would not get a lot of hands that go up. You know, you, if you ask people, okay, give your testimony. How, how did you come you know, to be a Christian? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. 
my parents were Christians. They they taught me from a young age. Or, um, you know, in high school, I went to a youth group event. Or, you know, in college, you know, I had a roommate that was a Christian. And, you know, they talked to me and I, you know, I, I, I gave my life to Christ. Or, you know, um, somebody witnessed to me and I went to Mass with them. And it just really spoke to me. And I just, I just really felt it there. And, you know, I, I became a Catholic or I became a Christian. All of these um, uh, stories do not say that it was the Bible alone. Some people, maybe, I'm not going to say it's it's exclusive because there are some people said I I grabbed the Bible, started reading it, and it just it just spoke to me. It just made sense, you know. I mean, I've had people tell me that you know the reason why they follow a particular tradition like uh, like Lutheranism is because they read the formula of Concord and just said that just resonated with me that spoke with me that was like yes this is what I think the proper way to worship and to do church is and so therefore I'm following it not a conversion experience but a, a denominational experience and so none of this is the scripture just sitting there reading it. It's all based on a prima scriptura. It is an unwritten interpretation of scripture that is being conveyed to somebody that is then converting them. That is where I find prima scriptura to be. Okay? So, um, I don't... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. I'm a prima scriptura person. Obviously, I think you can tell by the way I'm talking about it and how passionate I am. And that sets a lot of people off because they say, no, you cannot have an infallible word from God that is outside of scripture. And my argument is always, well, scripture is full of that exact concept. You know, I mean, you look at, uh, who was it? The daughters of Philip in the, in the book of Acts that were going out and prophesying. Well, if you're prophesying, then you are speaking for God. If you are speaking for God, that is a word from God. It is separate from the Bible. It is separate from the written word. Is that less than what God has said? Any prophecy, that was given before it was written down, would you consider that to be from God? If so, well then, does it have the same authority of Scripture? The answer is yes, it, it, it must. Just because you wrote something down does not give it the validity. The validity and the veracity of it comes from the one who enables that to occur namely God. So, God can use any um, mode that he wants. He can use any style that he wants. He can use any avenue that he wants to speak and is not just limited to tradition or not just limited to scripture rather, but scripture is what he has given us to be able to know his will and who he is. And, you know, gives us a way to then look back at the character and nature of him so that we can double check to make sure that what he is saying is, you know, on par with scripture. The Bereans were, you know, held up 
by Paul for doing this sort of thing. They refused to believe what Paul was saying. They searched the scriptures day and night, it says, you know, in order to see what Paul was saying if it was true or not, because it had to line up with what they had a scripture, which was the Old Testament. And Paul called them more noble because they didn't just accept what he said. They wanted to make sure that he was right, which is what is prescribed in Deuteronomy when somebody comes saying that they're a prophet and they have to do you know certain things. Um, so that I think is, is an important lesson for us to learn. And I think that it gives a very strong um, a push for prima scriptura. I'm not lowering the Bible by saying that. I'm not lowering scripture to saying that, that we can just throw it away. What I'm saying is that you have to allow God to have the avenues to work that he always has. He, he doesn't change. And if he doesn't change, then there should be this separate thing that's going on. Now, is this something that has to happen all the time? Well, no. Even within scripture, we see that there are times when God does not speak in those, um, you know, extra biblical ways, extra scripture ways, you know, outside of, of scripture. That, you know, there are times when there was silence. There was a 400-year period of silence between uh, the Old and the New Testament, you know. Um, there was a, a a silence of the supernatural sign gifts. Uh, John Christensen wrote about that in, in you know, his um, commentaries on Scripture in the, uh, in the 5th century. And you can read about those in the early church fathers' writings. And so... You know, he, he says in there that when he gets to, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the supernatural sign gifts. And he's like, look, he's like, you know, I hate to say, but uh, we're really ignorant, too, of these because they seem to have died out. All right. So God's not speaking in the same way in his time period that, you know, he spoke back then. And there's an acknowledgement of this. And I think that we need to acknowledge that. But if there is a time when God is speaking, uh, through um, different avenues, that it is given the same credibility of Scripture as long as it falls within the lines that Scripture has determined. And I think that that's the, the key thing. Um, I remember a, a minister of an African Methodist Episcopal Church telling me one time that um, somebody came during their service and stood up and started speaking in tongues. And the person preaching, the pastor preaching, let him go. And then when he was done, asked the congregation, is there an interpretation? And nobody stood up and he said, we need an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, that was not a word from God. And ask the person to stay after we need to speak with you. Because if you are going to do something like that, you are claiming to speak in tongues, you're claiming to speak for God, and it must be accompanied, accompanied by an interpretation from somebody else. And, you know, if there are patterns that they see where, you know, the same person is speaking in tongues and the same person interpreting, those two people need to be taken aside and they need to be talked to. And then even when that interpretation is given, it still needs to be held up to scripture to make sure that what that person was saying is actually a word from God. And that is prima scriptura. Okay. Now, I'm hearing the music, so we haven't even gotten to the solo scriptor or the solo scriptor yet, so that will be in the next podcast. But think about the concept of prima scriptura and what we're talking about. And again, thank you, my 
your voice held out. I thank God for that, for, you know, this, uh, this podcast, uh, please check us out on Facebook, um, at the, the theology pit, check us out at samsonstick.com. You can email me samson at samsonstick.com. Um, you can send me notes on Facebook as well. Um, private message me or, you know, do it publicly. I, I don't mind either way. Uh, you can also, um, get a hold of me through uh patreon you can subscribe to um be a uh a member there and then you get these podcasts as soon as i record them uh they get put out and you know um however you like and whatever you want to talk to me about and now it's definitely time to close down the pit thank you mm-hmm.